This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Charles Payne. I'm Kat Timpf. I'm Stuart Varney. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, March 16th, 2022. I'm Lisa Brady. It's like a flashback to 2015, a familiar debate over Iran's nuclear program. But this time, there's a Russian twist. I just think in the middle of everything that's happening in Ukraine, sort of the irony that we're relying on the Russians to broker a deal with Iran, I think that speaks volumes about how bad this deal really is. I'm Dave Anthony. The attack Russia started in Ukraine could mean the end of our alliance in space. Uh, We just can't deal with Russians anymore. We can't trust them uh, based upon everything that's going on. I'm Liz Peek. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. While Russia has been bombing Ukraine, the U.S. has been at the table with Russia as part of indirect nuclear talks with Iran, aimed at restoring the 2015 multi-nation deal that President Trump pulled the U.S. out of nearly four years ago. We continue to believe that it is profoundly in our national interest to see to it that Iran is permanently and verifiably barred from obtaining a nuclear weapon. State Department spokesman Ned Price says the hope is to complete a mutual return to compliance with the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA as it's known, in short order. But some of the same questions that dogged the original deal persist, including just how verifiable Iran's nuclear activities are, and how long any deal really prevents it from obtaining nuclear weapons if sunset provisions are included. Add to that an Iranian missile strike last weekend in northern Iraq, landing near a U.S. consulate. Iran's Revolutionary Guard claiming it was targeting an Israeli strategic center after Israel killed two of its members in Syria. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman telling Fox News Sunday Iran's malign behavior in the Middle East does need to be addressed after a nuclear deal. You know, we are very concerned about what Iran is doing, but imagine these Iranians with a nuclear weapon. Russia threw a wrench into the talks last week, demanding that future trade deals with Iran would have immunity from sanctions. The State Department said Tuesday that a nuclear deal won't be an escape hatch from sanctions over the war in Ukraine. Well, we know that uh, the Russians are in close coordination with the E3's negotiations with Iran. Texas Republican Congressman Michael McCall is ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. We also know that the Iranian officials visited Moscow recently to meet with uh, Russian officials about this Iran deal. I just think in the middle of everything that's, that's happening in Ukraine, sort of the irony that we're relying on the Russians to broker a deal with Iran, I think that speaks volumes about how bad this deal really is. Should Russia have been kicked out of these talks um, when the invasion began? Or is the thinking that it's not possible to have an Iran deal without them? I think uh, Russia is so involved in this deal, it'd be very difficult to reach a deal without them. They're the only country that has any leverage over Iran, which is why they're sitting at the table, which is why I think return to the JCPOA was, was a mistake. 
because we're having to rely on now the Russians to get to a deal that we think they're going to tell us is a good deal, when in fact, it's going back to the 2015 deal, and now on a shorter timetable with the sunset provisions in there that will guarantee a nuclear Iran within one to two years. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that 2015 deal, because part of former President Trump's argument was that Iran already wasn't living up to that deal before he pulled the U.S. out of it. I mean, is there any reason to believe it would be any different now? It's a trust issue, and I don't think we can really trust them. They've increased their enrichment up to 60 percent. They can probably flip it to 90 percent, which is enough to make a bomb with in a matter of a year. They already have short-range missiles. And for God's sakes, they just bombed Iraq in a very aggressive invasion with their missiles yesterday, almost hitting a U.S. consulate. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. I mean, we're actually negotiating with people that are you know, creating the biggest humanitarian crisis invasion since World War II. That's Russia. And then we're dealing with Iran that just fired missiles. I don't know if this is a, just pure naivete or, or just outright stupidity, but I, I just don't understand the foreign policy strategy. What about the argument that some transparency is better than what we get without a deal, that at least the U.N.'s nuclear watchdog can have greater access to see what Iran is doing, bearing in mind that it's never perfect access? Right. I I think we do want to continue to have inspections with greater transparency. And certainly, you know, the anytime, anywhere inspections made sense to me, but that's not what we have you know, right now, if they would agree to do a a peaceful nuclear energy program, which is at the 3.67% enrichment, we'd be having a different discussion. But that's not what they want. They want a glide path to have a nuclear bomb in a matter of years. And they're also demanding that the restrictions are placed on the IRGC, which is their terrorist arm, those foreign terrorist organization designations be lifted on what is very clearly a terrorist organization. Uh, throughout the Middle East. I just returned from Israel a couple weeks ago talking to the Prime Minister Bennett and with former Prime Minister Netanyahu. The entire Knesset in Israel is against this deal. And I think we owe some deference to our ally in the neighborhood in the Middle East and our partner. If they think it's a bad deal, that really is a strong statement. I remember the former prime minister, Netanyahu, used to hold up charts at the U.N. showing just how close Iran was to having a nuclear weapon. What did he tell you on this recent trip? I mean, how much closer is that time frame now? Because you're mentioning in a matter of years, but he seemed to think it was much sooner in terms of their breakout time frame. Well, that's right. Prime Minister Netanyahu is very clear that this is even worse than the 2015 deal. Because they have made so much further progress, and I think he made a very strong case to our delegation that the United States needs to stand with Israel in opposition. When you're negotiating partners of Russia, who's invaded Ukraine, and Iran, who's just fired missiles at your consulate uh, in Iraq, I just find that doesn't go without attention from the United States Congress. And also under the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, that we passed in 2015, it requires that this plan or this deal must be submitted to Congress before any sanctions are lifted. And it also requires a vote from Congress. I've gotten some uh, information that I I think they're going to try to get around that by saying that Congress has already agreed to the JCPOA and they're simply just getting back in it, therefore avoiding any vote by the United States Congress. 
Almost every Republican senator signed a letter warning the administration that, you know, it appears they're ready to give away the store, in essence, on this agreement. If you had to name a number one concern, because we've talked about a lot of concerns with the potential deal already, but what's really the number one concern in your mind? That you could have the largest state sponsor of terror with a nuclear weapon within a matter of one to two years. And uh, this will create an arms race in the Middle East. As we look at the events uh, in Ukraine, largest invasion since World War II on the European continent, and you couple that with a chance of a nuclear Armageddon in the Middle East, I can't think of two worse scenarios. One of the criticisms of the original nuclear deal is that it did not hold Iran accountable for sponsoring terrorism or any other bad deeds, if you will. They purposely kind of didn't include that. It was like the Obama administration didn't want to muddy the waters on trying to reach a deal, just focusing on on the main issue in their mind being the nuclear issue. Has that strategy changed at all with this administration? Has it even been put on the table? Talk of any accountability for sponsoring terrorism? Uh, No, it's not on the table. And I was basically told by the negotiators that it couldn't be on the table because Iran would never, they view that as a very separate issue from their nuclear program. And this is, you know, the uh, from Lebanon with Hezbollah to Hamas and the Gaza to the Houthi rebels uh, in Yemen. And these Shia proxies have been hitting Iraq and Syria and our forces there, you know, as well. But that is a, a non-starter with the Iranians in this deal, which also signifies why it's it's not a good one. Does the Ukraine crisis help to drive home the need to make sure Iran never gets a nuclear weapon? Because facing a nuclear armed Russia really complicates the Ukraine situation. I mean, have you heard or sensed any movement in the Iran debate because of that? You know, I I, I know Russia is making some uh, demands that we couldn't possibly meet, as you mentioned, on the trade sanctions. And if it fell apart, I think that would be a positive thing. But, you know, you're seeing this sort of unholy alliance really, it's been there, but it's really starting to come together and formalize between President Xi and Putin in Iran. And I would throw North Korea in that equation as well. And that's going to be the great geopolitical conflict that we're in right now. Is there any form of an Iran nuclear deal that you think would be acceptable to Republicans in in Congress? That's a great question. I I think if they would agree to a deal where we would give them enriched uranium at 3.67 for their peaceful nuclear energy program, or if they would agree not to have sunset provisions and have anytime, anywhere inspections at 3.67%. If they're really serious about it being for a peaceful nuclear energy program, that should be acceptable to them. But the problem is the whole premise of that is that that's not what they're pursuing. It's not just a peaceful nuclear energy program. It is to become a nuclear power. And once a country is a nuclear power, it's very difficult to take it away from them. Well, 49 out of 50 Senate Republicans are vowing to reverse a deal that weakens sanctions or makes it harder to confront Iran's support of terrorism, for instance. Do you think, though, that reversal is only possible if Republicans take back control of Congress? Or is this an issue where some Democrats share your concerns? Well, I think two things on that. One is, uh, yeah, you're right. This would have to be a veto-proof majority vote. And um, you're not going to find that in this Congress. 
And also the administration is going to make the argument that the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act doesn't apply, which would require a vote because they've already we've already approved the JCPOA itself. And so they're finding a legal argument to get around that congressional vote by the American people on something of this magnitude. Possibly if we get the majority back and and we can reverse that legal decision, uh, we could have a vote on it. But that seems unlikely. It feels like this whole issue of Iran has been kind of flying a little under the radar uh, recently, Mm -hmm. especially because of the Ukraine crisis. What is your message to the American people about it? What would your message be? Well, the timing is very odd and awkward. The negotiators I met with before they went to Vienna, and this is all happening in in the middle of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, I would just argue to the American people, uh, this administration is once again going down the road of appeasement, and that always invites aggression and hostilities. And that's why you're seeing, I think, in large part, you know, this uh, crimes against humanity situation in Ukraine. And that's why you're seeing the Ayatollah's team going to Moscow to meet with the Russians who are brokering this deal. If that doesn't signal why this is not a good deal, I don't know what does. And just, you know, that's why, you know, China's looking at an invasion of Taiwan. Um, you know, it's a uh, premise that goes back to my dad's war, the World War II, and, you know, Chamberlain and Hitler. You know, Churchill came in and talked about, you know, appeasement invites aggression. And Reagan talked about strength, uh, peace through strength. And I think those are historical axioms that are still true today. Texas Republican Congressman Michael McCall, we appreciate your time. Well, thanks so much for having me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Liz Peek with your Fox News commentary coming up. Mark Vandehei made history this week. He has been in space longer than any other American, 341 days breaking fellow astronaut Scott Kelly's record by one day. And he'll be there two more weeks, though there was some concern about his return because Russia is giving Van de Heij a ride home and there is tension over its Ukraine invasion. The head of Russia's space agency suggested they could just leave him there. But NASA says no way. I can tell you for sure Mark is coming home on that Soyuz. Uh, We are in communication with our Russian colleagues. There's no fuzz on that. International Space Station Program Director Joel Montalbano says the joint operation with the Russians continues to go well despite the war in Ukraine. But for how much longer? Our space program is going great. Homer Hickam is a former NASA engineer and author of many books, including the memoirs Rocket Boys and Don't Blow Yourself Up. We're in kind of the new golden age of, uh, of space with SpaceX and Blue Origin and ULA. Uh, it's the Russians that are in trouble, whether they know it or not. 
Well, we have been dealing with them for decades, going back to when you were working at NASA on the International Space Station. You helped to set up the partnership with Russia, correct? I did. Uh, I had just finished um, a, another international space flight uh, with the Japanese. I'd spent a couple of years over in Japan training the Japanese for what was called Space Lab J, uh, training the first Japanese astronauts. And uh, we flew in 1992. And that was about the same time that uh, Vice President uh, Gore, about, uh, I would say six to nine months later after uh, SLJ flew, decided that the Russians should be part of, uh, of our space station. We had one called Space Station Freedom that Ronald Reagan started. Uh, we hadn't launched anything. We were still building some modules. And um, Vice President Gore uh, decided that uh, it would be a really good idea to bring the Russians in since the Soviet Union had fallen. And there was some worry that their engineers might go work for North Korea or Iraq or Iran. Well, you probably had to build trust, too. I mean, we we were in a Cold War for decades with the Soviets. So, first of all, you have to build trust. That had to be the hardest thing at first anyway, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, what was interesting for me, uh, uh, of course, I'm kind of famous for seeing Sputnik fly over in 1957 when I lived in West Virginia. And it prompted me to ultimately build a whole bunch of, of rockets, homemade rockets, go to the National Science Fair, and then uh, become an engineer. Uh, so the, that story was, you know, Rocket Boys and then the movie October Sky. Right. So here I am sitting across from the table with the men who had actually launched Sputnik. Um, our uh, engineers and scientists from the old Apollo days had uh, long since retired, but um, in Russia, those men were still there. So that was very, very interesting to me to start talking to them. They were very gruff. Uh, very unhappy having to be in this situation because they knew that they were going to have to depend on the Americans to build this uh, space station. And they did have one in orbit called the Mirror at that time, uh, but it was an antique. It was about ready to have to be thrown away. So ultimately, what we found out was just let them bluster uh, until they wore themselves down, be very firm on what we wanted to do. And then at the party afterwards, and there was always a party afterwards, <laughs> that's when you started making um, you know, some friendships and some common cause. And that's uh, that's how we worked it out. Okay, now now give me a, an idea of the space station as it's constructed now. You have the, the the Americans and the Russians, they're up there at the same time. What what's the, the layout of the land up there? I mean, is it there's a well, Russian side, an American side? How, how what is it like up there? There is a Russian side. There's no question about it. Essentially from what I understand, talking to some of the American astronauts, um, the Russians tend to keep to themselves already a little bit over on their side of the station. Uh, but there is some uh, some uh, obvious, obviously common equipment, including a data processing uh, a system that the Russians have on their side that operates throughout the, the space station. Primarily, however, um, the Russians in the last few years have been uh, mostly uh, adding to the space station uh, or, or helping the space station out by boosting it into a higher, safer orbit. It's so huge. Uh, there are still enough air molecules, even at uh, 200 miles, to start slowing the space station down. So when they bring up either a Progress cargo craft or a Soyuz, uh, they'll attach it over um, at the uh, uh, on their side. And then uh, before the progress or the Soyuz detaches, they give the space station a little boost 
and then they detach and uh, go on back to the earth or burn up in the in the air like the progress does. Okay. So, um, but there is an awful lot of back and forth between the ground stations between the mission control in Houston and um, their uh, version of uh, uh, called the soup to soup TSUP uh, over in the uh, in a suburb of Moscow. There's a lot of interaction back and forth uh, between them in this current conflict. We're like three weeks into this Russian invasion of Ukraine. There has been tension with American Mark Vandehein, who's supposed to come home March 30th. NASA says that's going to happen. He'll come home on a Soyuz, so we'll still be working with the Russians. But Dmitry Rogozin, who is the chief of the Russian Federal Space Agency, hinted that, you know what, we could just leave. They put this video out looking, making it look like they leave. They abandon Mark Vandehein, and they leave it, and, and then threaten that the station the, uh, could be out of orbit and then fall on our heads. The reality yeah, I mean, of that? Rigozin, What's the reality of that? Well, Rigozin just doesn't make sense. He's been blustering around and uh, canceling contracts that he already had to uh, launch commercial satellites. And they they obviously desperately need the money over there in, in uh, Russia. Um, and But his blustering includes uh, saying, uh, well, maybe we'll just withdraw entirely from the International Space Station and we won't bring your astronaut back and blah, blah. And everybody knew that this was just a big bluster on his part and don't really understand why he's doing this. He seems to be separated from the rest of his own agency because the uh, NASA, NASA folks and uh, Roscosmos uh, people, the Russian space agency are working very, very well still without any hindrance whatsoever, any change really in the operations of the uh, International Space Station. Forward from that, we do have SpaceX, we have Dragon capsules, they bring astronauts up into the space station now, they can. How much more do we need even to rely on the Russians for Soyuz launches to get there or get home? Well, we don't really need to rely on them at all. And uh, I think I would be willing to to guess that in the future we might have maybe one or two more go, but no more. Uh, we just can't deal with the Russians anymore. We can't trust them uh, based upon everything that's going on and what Rikosin, who's after after all the boss, is saying. So it would be best for us to go ahead and plan to um, to carry our crews up on American uh, spacecraft. So we not only have SpaceX, but we have uh, Boeing Starliner coming along. Uh, eventually it will be ready. How much longer is the International Space Station supposed to be up there anyway? Well, uh, just recently, and it, was, it surprised most of us who pay attention to, to um, uh, the space program and, and space matters. Uh, uh, just recently, NASA announced that they were going to extend the life of the International Space Station to 2030. Uh, most, uh, most folks thought that uh, the end would be around 2026. Uh, so uh, we're not exactly sure um, why uh, that decision was made because on uh, NASA's plate right now is the Artemis program, which is going to require a huge expenditure of funds and effort. Um, and I'm not really sure that they have enough personnel or money to operate both the International Space Station and Artemis, which is the return to the moon program, uh, which um, which uh, includes building another space station called the Gateway. And all that's supposed to be done in the next few years. Gateway? Is it uh, would it, it would replace it? it? What's different about the Gateway versus the current uh, space station? 
<laughs> well, Gateway is as a, uh, a a mini space station that actually um, operates in the vicinity of the moon. So it, it's not going to replace the uh, International Space Station in low Earth orbit. And the reason for it is to have some place for the uh, uh, American astronauts to uh, wait for the uh, HLS, the SpaceX, which is a, uh, a uh, starship that hasn't even flown yet, to fly up to the gateway, pick up uh, American astronauts there and use uh, the uh, human landing system, HLS uh, uh, starship to land on the moon. So my gosh, there's a huge amount of work uh, for NASA to make any of that happen. Well, if we don't work with Russia anymore, would that precipitate a faster conclusion to the space station's life? Uh, I, you know, uh, we've got to talk to our partners. We've got major partners. We, we just can't do things unilaterally. We have signed a treaty, uh, not only with Russia, and this was in, in 1998, but with the Europeans, uh, through the European Space Agency, uh, which includes uh, the UK uh, and Japan and Canada. And uh, this is we have uh, treaty obligations before we do anything. We can't just walk away from the space station without getting um, other more agreements with uh, with our partners, uh, w- whether we have the Russians or not. So the Japanese may continue to want to operate their uh, the gym module, the uh, Japanese experimental module. Um, and the Europeans have uh, have their uh, laboratory up there too. They are they're keen and eager to keep it going. Uh, so uh, NASA, I mean, just uh, in terms of uh, diplomacy, has an awful lot of work to do and an awful lot uh, on their plate right now. But again, you don't see any drama bringing Mark Van High home. I, I don't. I don't. And I've talked to. Uh, the folks uh, here at Marshall Space Flight Center who uh, operate the uh, control here and um, their indications are that there's uh, they're working very, very well uh, with their Russian counterparts, most of whom they know, by the way, they've been back and forth to Russia. They've been back and forth here to Huntsville and down to Houston. And uh, so uh, the, the, all, that partnership is working very well at that engineer uh, technical level. I just don't see also uh, the Russian cosmonauts uh, and the American astronauts. Again, they're, they are friends. They have been, they visited each other's families. They probably die for each other. So I don't see uh, the Russian cosmonauts being uh, bullied so much that they would leave their buddy Mark behind. So, um, so I, I see them coming home without any problems. Homer Hickam, former NASA engineer, also author of Rocket Boys, Don't Blow Yourself Up, and also many other books, including novels. Homer, thank you very much for joining us. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Liz Peek. What's on your mind? Just when you thought things could not get worse, along comes the very real possibility of a downturn. Thanks to Bidenomics, the war in Ukraine, and an inept Federal Reserve. A year ago, during a robust recovery, such a forecast would have seemed ludicrous. 
A top Wall Street economist recently conducted an informal poll of his firm's clients. To his surprise, 100% thought the U.S. would be in a recession by next year. Why such gloom? It starts with accelerating inflation caused by out-of-control government spending and measures taken by the Biden White House that kept workers on the sidelines. Inflation is also being fueled by soaring energy prices thanks to lower U.S. production in the midst of reviving growth and now the disruption to Russian oil exports. A note, the four past recessions have been preceded by sharp hikes in energy prices. $100 oil is a red flag. To combat spiraling prices, the Federal Reserve must begin raising rates aggressively, which will slow growth. After initially dismissing spiraling inflation over the past year and then blaming supply chain snafus and greedy corporations, the White House is now saying Russian President Vladimir Putin is responsible. Unfortunately for Biden, most voters disagree. Voters know that Democrats' signature government spendathons have driven 40-year high inflation. Biden signed into law the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan just three months after Congress passed a $900 billion package. It brought total COVID-related spending to $5.7 trillion, more than was spent fighting World War II. The ARP exploded already strong demand and led to shortages and, inevitably, rising prices. Simply stated, it created too much money chasing too few goods. Soaring energy costs are also clearly a major factor in the recent inflation surge. Biden is blaming Putin, but voters know that of the $1.75 hike in gasoline prices over the past year, fully $1 predated the war in Ukraine. $1 per gallon, which is robbing Americans of $400 million every single day. Because of that and many other issues, Americans are becoming more pessimistic. The University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index sank to the lowest level in 11 years in February, worse than expected. Considering the robust jobs market, the dismal reading is surprising. But real wages are down 2.6% over the past year. People know when they're falling behind. Recession in 2023 is not yet the consensus to be sure. After all, the economy is still motoring ahead, driven by a 40% increase in the money supply over the past two years, rising nominal wages, and a near-record low inventory-to-sales ratio, which means that even with rising uncertainty, many businesses will continue to invest in restocking goods. But the odds of Biden's recession are rising fast. Liz Peake, Fox News contributor. Listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up to the minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at guybensonshow.com. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.